And so here we are once again, July the 19th today, uh, 2020, lecture discussion number 109. I did get a letter saying that our numbering was off and says this message was sent to you using the contact email for form on sermon audio from Daniel from Texas, I'm pretty sure. The numbering on sermon audio does not match the new website. It's off by one. Anything that is off by one is the same. So we're doing really good if we're only off by one. You should see, Daniel, what you have to work with here. It, uh, we're not impressive. Start, you know, the, the fish rots from the head, though, right? So there we go. Anyway, July the 19th, 2020, lecture discussion number 109, maybe, on the book of Joel Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes. i got a couple of things here really fast besides that I want to address. Uh, one, uh, we got this, uh, found this, I guess it was sent to us, or we just, I think it was sent to us. Uh, New World Order, UN Agenda 2030. So this is what they would like to accomplish in 2030, if there's any accuracy. And I didn't have a chance to vet it, but I know some of this is correct. They want a one world government, of course, a, a worldwide government. And that is uh, that fits in with the with the signs of the end of the age. Right. They want a worldwide cashless currency. They've already uh, pretty much accomplished that. Uh, anybody under 30 doesn't carry cash anymore unless they're a pool player. They want a one-world central bank. That's been on the docket for many, many years, almost my whole time. A one-world military. That was the purpose of the United Nations uh, forces, even though they are completely incompetent. The end of all national sovereignty. And I think uh, that obviously is something that the UN would like to see. The end of the family unit. Well, I know that's popular in our country for sure. They'd like to destroy what they call the patriarchal or the nuclear family. Depopulation. That has been on the agenda since the eugenics movement got uh, ahead of steam. Mandatory multiple vaccines. Uh, yeah, we're seeing right now it's going to be difficult to buy uh, or go to the store unless you are fulfilling some kind of government uh, uh, declaration, and so it won't be very very long before you'll have to have a biological structure inside of you in order to be uh, economically viable. Universal basic income, that of course is the, uh, the dream of the communists or the socialists in our country. Microchip society on purchasing, travel tracking, and controlling, of course that is a biblical prophecy. Some of these things may have been added to this. I don't know all of it. But the end of immigration, they would like to get rid of all national borders. And, uh, and of course, communism wants to get, the, get rid of private uh, land. And uh, they want, obviously, control of schools and universities and colleges. Well, they already have that in this country. The government controls and the union. And can, one half of the government controls our colleges and our schools and our universities. And so uh, anything that destroys freedom... Uh, that's what they want. And, and that, of course, shows up. Now, if they make it happen by 2030, that actually comports really well with the end of the age. So we're hoping that they're right. Remember, this is stuff that is supposed to happen. Don't freak out. It's supposed to happen. We're watching our country and countries around the world destroy themselves. This pandemic, I think, is a big factor in that. Uh, I'll make the case here in a minute that uh, pandemics and famines are are interwoven. If you have a pandemic, you have a famine because you shut down the means of production of food and the means of production of oil or fuel. So anyway, just wanted to say that. And then the, my last thing that is not really part of the lecture is I got a Schrodinger's cat tie. Yeah. Yeah. And so let me read it. It says, Jesus loves you. Hi there, Mr. Pastor. Just a little something I came across and couldn't resist. If anyone needs a Schrodinger's uh, cat tie, it's you. I found a hoodie that has a that has a half alive, half dead cat on it that reads Schrodinger's cat. Our quantum position is super. And I finally and I found a Thomas Sowell uh, T-shirt that reads I'm a soul man. And that was fun. Anyway, life is very hasty. I'm sorry, very busy, as I'm sure you are experiencing the same. Love you guys. Enjoy your summer work season. Uh, P.S. This paper, uh, this paper is made of elephant poo. So, I thought that was very funny, and I appreciate my Schrodinger's cat tie.
because I, I do have to have one. Okay, we shall continue where we uh, stopped last week, um, if we can remember that, who can, which was the symbolism of the ashes of the red heifer, the fourth of the sevenfold cleansing provisions, all of which are fundamentally, as is everything in the Old Testament, John 5:39. It is fundamentally testifying of who the person of Jesus Christ really is. It's a revealing him as he actually is, not as the caricature that we have in most of the uh, church, uh, churchianity of today in the different uh, denominations. They have a diminished or they have a degraded or they have a, sm- a small uh, understanding of who Christ is. And the ashes of the red, red heifer, as do all of the other Six of the sevenfold uh, cleansing provisions, they demonstrate who he actually is uh, in, in the symbolism and in typology. And each and every one of them c- contains extensive, if not exhaustive, exhaust less would be more correct, past and inner uh, relationships. So when you start studying them, they recognize there there's a tremendous amount of information and there's this inner relationship or connectivity that we'll have to uh, find. And there's that's for a purpose, because once you begin to add them all together, you get the sum of the total, right? And with that said, uh, the most obvious example of the sevenfold cleansing provisions with respect to all of its complexity, its volume of testimony as to the nature and the person of Christ, that is, of course, course, the sign of the ashes of the red heifer, in my opinion. I think the answers to some of the difficult questions in the Bible can be found in especially the New Testament. Difficult questions that you have with respect to doctrine in the New Testament can be solved by the sign of the ashes of the red heifer. And I say sign because I submit that the ashes of the red heifer has both practicality and conveyance. In other words, the ashes of the red heifer are utilized as a cleansing device, a mechanism for cleansing from contact with death. And obviously, they are representing a representative of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So that alone, you can just stop right there. I need the ashes of the red heifer to make a cleansing agency, a cleansing agent, a device, if you will, a paste that makes the priesthood, that restores the priesthood. Uh, and when I can restore the, when I say I, when, when the priesthood can be, I shouldn't say I, I'm not going to do it. Uh, and that was a, what we call that, a literary uh, usage. Uh, but the ashes of the red heifer will cause the restoration of the Levitical and Aaronic, Aaronic priesthood. When you have those restored, then that is an extraordinary thing because that allows for the resurrection and the return, if you will, of a tremendous amount of activity with regard to the nation of Israel, the oblations, the sacrificial system and all the offerings. And when the ashes are found, notice I'm saying it as if it is inevitable that they are found, and I believe that it will be inevitable, Israel... uh, then enters into the time of the tribulational temple. What I mean by that, I have temples, and we should, I should make a note. Cover all the temples. That's what I'll do next week. Temples. We have lots of temples, not lots, but enough temples, and each one of them is independent, but all of them do what? That's right, they all connect together, and who do they testify of? They testify of Christ. That's especially true with the tent of Moses and the Talites over all of the individual Jewish men as they stand out in front of the tent of Moses, and Balaam looks down on top of them and sees that this is a, a this huge temple tabernacle of Moses is being represented by all of these individual Jews. And a, tr- a tremendous amount of, of Again, testimony of Christ. So in Israel, when they have the ashes of the red heifer, they're able to now, they enter into the time of the tribulational temple, the last temple before the millennial temple. And that is the time of Daniel 9.27 and Matthew 24.15. So let's start doing this. I didn't have a chance to put it on the board today because Terry was on time. So these two uh, are put together. And Christ, what he's doing in Matthew 24, 15, he is answering his disciples, as you know. 
We've covered this a lot of times. There's three questions his disciples ask him. Matthew 24, 3. So let's put that on the board again. We do the same thing every week no matter what. That's true. Every week no matter what, I am trying to get as much information about who Christ truly is as I can. And you know this too, in 24.3, that Jesus is given three questions. Now, some will say two questions. Cross that out. There's three questions. I'll explain that in just a second. He answers the third question first. So the third question is answered first. And knowing that right off the bat helps you understand all of it. If you get that wrong, if you don't know that the third question is first and the first question is second. Oops. First question, second. Now what's left? Do the math. Uh, Obviously, the second question is third. I hope that didn't confuse anybody. So he answers the the third question first, the first question second, and the second question third. That's what he does. And that is Matthew 24, 4 through 26. And the third question, actually all the way to the end of Matthew 24. As you know... uh, The third question concerns the end of the age of the Gentiles. Now, I've said, as you know, now three or four times in a row, that's four or five times. If I had a box up there, I'd have to fill the box up. But I think you all recognize this, that have listened to Cliffside for any length of time. If you haven't, if you're joining us for the first time, beware, run for your life. Shut the the, the DV off. Uh, Okay, that may be a little harsh. You can go ahead and let the DV... Or what is it? Facebook? You can let it play. I'm sort of kidding. The third question is the end of the age of the Gentiles. What are the signs? What are the signs? That takes up 20 verses of Matthew 4, 24. And I've said it all for months now. Some of the signs are nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That's world war. Sign of the end of the age of the Gentiles is world famine, world disease. Again, famine and disease will happen simultaneously. One causes the other. If I have famine, I will have disease. If I have disease, I definitely will have famine. If the people who produce the food and transport the food and make the fuel in this country are debilitated and cannot function because of disease then there is no food, there is no help, there is no electrical systems, everything will break down. So when we see world war, world famine, of course there will be world disease and worldwide earthquakes. I think everyone will know earthquakes simultaneously. I think it's a worldwide sign. That, of course, is going to be the end of the age then that when those signs are produced, we're headed for the great tribulation of Joel 2:30 30 through 32, Jeremiah 37, Daniel 12:1, and Revelation 3:10. I put Revelation 3:10 up there because that is one of, that's the sign of the Church of Philadelphia, which I will say to you is a sign of Lot's wife, which I will say to you is the sign of the abducted bride. All of those, in my view, are the same thing. Anyway, Matthew 24:15, Daniel 9:27 is where Christ says things that are incredibly important. And here's what he says, and I kind of condensed it a little bit. We'll read Daniel 9:27, but this is mostly uh, what he says in Matthew 24:15. Therefore, now he's speaking to his apostles, and he is answering the third question first. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, Daniel 9:27, the sign of Daniel 9:27, spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So let's read Daniel 9.27. So what he's saying is when you see the abomination of desecration, and and that obviously is a person and an event, standing, when you see him standing in the holy place, what's the holy place? That is the holy of holies. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So here's Daniel 9.27. Then he, actually maybe I should start at Daniel 9.26, I will. And after 62 weeks, 
which is after seven weeks, that's 62 sevens after the seven sevens, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Wow. Then who for? And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. What's the sanctuary? That's a temple. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he, he is the he of the prince. He's the prince and of the people who um, is to come. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one seven. And but in the middle of the seven, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate until even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolator. Uh, your Bible might say desolate, but I think you'll find that literally it is the desolator. So the components of the sign of the abomination that makes desolate are a confirmation of a covenant for a seven. Uh, When you see weak, you can always say seven. If you see seven, you can always say weak. In scripture, the words are identical and interchangeable. So there's going to be a confirmation of a covenant for a seven. And that puts an end to the sacrifices and the offerings in the middle of the seven, which is three and a half years. And it's by he, this is the he, the prince who confirmed the covenant covenant until the consummation of all of this, which is determined uh, and is poured out on the him or the he, the desolator who stood in the holy place. I hope that makes some sense. I'm going fast because I have to. And this is happening, Matthew 2014. This is the gospel of the messianic kingdom to come. And 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 it's going to be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations worldwide preaching. And, I, and of course, again, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing together Matthew 24 and Daniel 9. I'm pushing them all together. So read Matthew 24, um, probably four through all the way to 25 or so. And you'll see how I have done that. I've added, I'm trying to make Matthew 24 and Daniel 9 fit together for you, because they do. So there will be preaching in all of the world during the time that this event in the middle of the final seven occurs. This three and a half year period. We're at three and a half years. There's this abomination of desolation signed by the, des- signed by the desolator, and there's going to be a witness to all nations, the gospel of the messianic kingdom, which is coming very soon because the messianic kingdom comes after this final 70th week of Daniel. And there will be worldwide preaching. Now, who's going to do the worldwide preaching? I think it's pretty obvious. I think this is Revelation 7 and Revelation 11. And what's that? Oop, my pen is almost dead. Let's make it through. Revelation 7, of course, is 144,000, and the uh, Revelation 11 is the two witnesses. So I think they will preach to all of the world. And so this worldwide salvation preaching of the gospel of the messianic kingdom that is now only three and a half years away. Now, I'm... At that point, it was. But when the the, uh, 144,000 and the two witnesses began... uh, 144,000 begins right at the start of the uh, of the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel. So, again, I'm trying to mix it all together so it makes some kind of has some kind of continuity for you. So, uh, as I do that, you may get the wrong impression. Anyway, so if there's going to be a sign of the abomination, what is the sign of the abomination that makes desolate? He comes in to the holy place, and he does something in there uh, that makes it desolate. Uh, And he ends the oblations and the sacrifices and the offerings. All the same thing, pretty much. And therefore, there has to be something before that. And that means that we have to have a list. And I I may need another pencil. I hope I don't. I hope I can get through my list. I'm going to put it on the board here in a second. This is list day. And hopefully a few of you who are listening 
Remember the Daniel 9.25 calculations of a few months ago. The Hebrew reckoning, the Hebrew calendar year of 360 days, the Gregorian calendar year of 365 days, 173,880. Do you remember all of that? Shake your head yes. Yeah. Nobody lived through that. But in all of that, I have the fourth decree. And the fourth decree is the second decree of Artaxerxes. That's Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. Not to be confused with the first decree of Artaxerxes, which is the third decree, which is Ezra 7, 11 through 26. And of course, Cyrus issued the first decree at Second Chronicles 36, 23, and Ezra 1, 1 through 4, and 5, 13. And obvious Darius or Darius proclaimed the second decree just by elimination. No, he actually did chronologically, and that's Ezra 6, 1 through 12. And I know what you're all thinking. You're thinking, and some are even shouting right now in the digital realm. Some are shouting at the video feed as I speak, and I understand why you do it. You say all the time to me, how does he make it so easy to understand? And it's a gift. I'm just good at this. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to be returning to Ezra and Nehemiah. Everybody say yay. Okay, no one said yay. But for today, know that the fourth decree is the decree, the the commandment of Daniel 9.25. Know, therefore, and understand that the going forth of the command, that command is the fourth decree. And so we have a list. And and when I say we, I I really be me. And it begins with the four decrees. Okay, I can put my glasses back on now. Because I don't have to keep track of what I'm doing. Oh, did you find me pens? Terrific. Thank you. These are my favorite Japanese given gift. Give me a black if you can. That was my right hand. And of course, I throw right handed so I don't catch right handed. That's just basic baseball. So this should work good. Anyway, notice I bent over and picked the pen up without making any noises because I am spelt. Very spelt. So we have decrees and we start out with. Oops, this one doesn't seem to work any better than I got. Got anything else? Um, get, let me try. Let me, let me see what I got. I might have. Something that'll work. Okay, go ahead and get something to eat, those of you who are watching. I'm going to go with red. Oh, I dropped my, my poo paper. So, the first decree was issued by Cyrus. The second decree was issued by Darius Diarius. The third decree, Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. The The fourth decree also given by Artaxerxes. So that is why the fourth decree is the second decree. The third decree is the first decree of the two decrees of Artaxerxes, if that makes sense. And so I, then we're going to, now again, I'm doing two things. I got Daniel 9, 25 through, oh, what is it, 27. I got Matthew 24, if you want, 1 through 26, probably would get it all done. Probably actually 3 through 26. And then, uh, so that's what this list is. And then uh, after that, I have um, the city of Jerusalem is going to be restored. The city of Jerusalem restored and rebuilt, including the streets. Jehovah Jireh Salam, right? And then, um, then there's Messiah, the Prince. That, of course, is Christ. 
Messiah the Prince will be uh, cut off. And you see this, I'll skip the cut off point because he gives you the, the time of the cutting off. He says that there is a seven seven or seven weeks, which is a seven seven. So there's a seven seven. Seven times seven is forty nine. Okay, math. And then there are 62 weeks to deal with. 62 weeks are 62 sevens. And that's 434. Yay, math. And then, of course, if I add 434 to to 49, I have 483 years, which is one seven less than 490. So that means it is 69 sevens, and it needs to be 70 sevens. So we are missing the 70th seven. 70th seven is the tribulational period that has this interim. We are now in the parentheses. Okay, number 10. Oh, I did make a sound, but look at me do this. Number 10, Messiah is cut off. That's amazing in itself, uh, and not for himself. I should write that in red. Oh, wait. Yeah. Messiah is cut off, not for himself. It's obvious the first question that goes bang right into your forehead. If he's not cut off for himself, cut off means he dies for he dies, but not for himself. So who does he die for? Well, everybody, every Christian should know that he dies uh, for humanity. <coughs> uh, but obviously there's a totality here, not for himself. What else is involved in not for himself? I'm going to get rid of this now. Because you can rewind and find those. And I put most of it up here anyway. So now we get to number 11. And I have uh, uh, this prince, who is a he and a him. Also, those pronouns go back to the prince. The prince who is to come. This is not the Messiah Prince. This is somebody else. Why is he called a prince? He's the prince of what? What is Christ? The prince of peace. We know that. The prince of light. The prince of, of life. This is a, another prince, but he is not the prince of truth or life or light. And then right here, number 12 on the list, as you all read it together, you probably missed this part, but here it is right here. Kind of, I get it a little bit. I, I had to decide to put it someplace, but this is the ashes of the red heifer. I need to write red heifer in red. Oh, yeah. Golly. How does he do it? And I'm saying that this is a sign. This is the sign of the ashes of the red heifer. And then we get this prince. He, he is um, the prince who is to come. Shall destroy the city of the, of the people. Shall destroy the city. Jerusalem. Oops. It's spelled Jerusalem. Jeru, oh, I meant it really badly. I forgot. Hold on to it. Jeru Salam. So there's this destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary. So I have people, I have the prince of the people who are to come. I have this destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That happened in 70 A.D., most people think. But also it implies it has a duality. The prince is going to uh, do something in this temple 
and three and a half years of the final seven that's missing of the 497s, the 490th seven that's missing, he's going to divide it into two pieces, three and a half, three and a half, and he's going to do something in the holy place that is the abomination that makes desolate. So he is going to destroy uh, the temple and Jerusalem in another fashion. What, what does this destroy mean in that sentence? Does it have more than one meaning? We'll get to that as time goes by as we continue this path. And then we have this nation against nation. It's going to occur. Kingdom against kingdom. That is an idiom for world war. As you know, it's the tenth time I've said that. Um, we'll have pestilence and famine. They're determined, and these, of course, are worldwide. We see this worldwide element from Genesis 6 uh, come again. Uh, there's going to be earthquakes. And you know that I have the opinion, I'm of the opinion that this is also world. So I have world war, world disease, world famine, world earthquake. The world is rocked, if you will. And then the gospel of the kingdom, of the messianic kingdom, will be preached to the whole World. So I have these four world uh, situations here. One of them is salvation, the other are signs. Remember, God shouts to his creation. Then uh, next comes, of course, this abomination. Um, too many bees. Abomination. Desolation. Uh, and, and that's in the middle, that's in the three and a half year part point of the 70th seven. And, and then the pre, the prince, this prince, little little p, brings an end to the offerings and the offerings and the uh, uh, sacrifices. They are not necessarily the same sacrifices, of course, or blood sacrifices and then Christ says when you see this and to repeat when you see this run flee flee to the mountains okay so that is effectively Daniel 9 and Matthew 24 put together. And that's what I've done as best I can do. I hope it makes sense to somebody. Now, uh, first and before, I've got to look at the time here. How am I doing? Doing good. Before the uh, letters pour in from uh, you folks in the vast Internet audience, allow me to preempt the complaint that my list is not perfect. It's not. It's not perfectly sequential. Numbers 11 and 13 should be after. Numbers 14, 15, and 16, and some of these are happening simultaneously. They're concurrent. They're synchronic. Synchronic, sorry. And again, 14 and 15 are like that way. They are. These are. 14, 15, 16 are all going like this. Now, the earthquakes continue and blackouts continue into the tribulation. These are pre-tribulational. Some make the case that the earthquakes are pre-tribulational. And the earthquakes are increasing, and there may be a, a worldwide earthquake condition before the tribulation, but I'm not sure of that. Uh, I know it definitely happens in the tribulation.
Um, and again, some of them are synchronic and some of them are sequential. I think that um, uh, 18 through 22 are sequential or they're uh, chronological. So, with all that said, the point of the list, yay, maybe, maybe a point, maybe a point. We, got, we have these qualifiers now. But maybe the point is this placing of the ashes of the red heifer, the sign of the ashes of the red heifer. Um, and some would insist that this, it isn't the sign of the red ashes of the red heifer, but I believe that it is, and I'll make my case here in a second. Some would insist that uh, it is the sign of the return of the Ark of the Testimony. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, if you prefer the movie uh, appellation or designation. There's nothing wrong with Ark of the Covenant, but uh, the Ark of the Testimony, I think, is more accurate. Because, um, you see, if there is no ashes of the red heifer, if I don't have the ashes of the red heifer, if Israel does not possess the ashes of the red heifer, then the Levitical and the Aaronic priesthood can't be reestablished. It can't be resurrected. I'm using that word on purpose. And that means that they cannot be ceremonial, ceremonially cleansed and prepared for the oblations, the sacrifice system and the offering system. They can't do it. The sacrifice offering system is blocked, it cut off, if you will. It's been, it's been waiting because there is no way. One, there's no nation of Israel. There's finally a nation of Israel. And we now have, I said to the lovely Lori the other day, last year I got up here and said, we are so close. All we have to do is wait for this Ezekiel 38. And, and this year we have a worldwide pandemic. And we don't have the famine that accompanies it, but we're, we may. Things are unraveling very fast in this country, and you know it's happening all over the world. People will panic if there's any kind of loss of fuel. If you lose fuel, let me repeat, you lose electricity. I don't care how many stupid windmills you got. You're not getting anywhere without generation, and you need fuel for generation. Maybe you can go with Niagara, and maybe you can go with nuclear power. But everybody else is on coal. And I don't care how, how fancy of a coal car you have that you plug into a coal power generator. It still requires generated power. If that disappears, uh, then the whole civil society is going to collapse, especially with the conditions we have now. I don't want to be political, but I don't have to be. Just watch what's going on. And we are supposed to be to watch, right? So last Sunday, I inferred, and I was waiting for a letter, but nobody gave me any because they don't really like me that much. But I inferred that the ashes of the red heifer has occurred only once in history. That there's only been one. Now, I recognize that they've been trying to genetically engineer one, and they hope that they can. But I don't believe that they can do it. Um, I think the ashes of the red heifer are unique. Essentially, I'm saying that there has only been one of these and there's only been one that is without blemish. That's what it says. It must be without blemish. How did how did they get the first one? Where did it come from? Who got it for them? Because yeah, this red heifer has to be without blemish and it has to be without defect and it has to be one in which a yoke has never come. A yoke has never come is a description. And those are the words of the YHVH. That is the ineffable name of God himself. That is the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And he spoke that to Moses and Aaron. And it's a commanded ordinance of the law. It's a statute forever, this ashes of the uh, red heifer for the Israelite and for the stranger in Israel, which are the Gentiles. So it's for both Israel and the Gentiles. So I have an ashes of the red heifer that is for both. That's Numbers 19. And Numbers 19 is overflowing with information as to what is necessary to cleanse someone, especially a priest, but in this case anyone, what is, what is necessary to cleanse from contact with death. So if you have death, you have been defiled. So if you're, uh, I'm an, I am a, a walking 
example of death and decay. Um, that's the disadvantages of being on the Internet for... Oh, somebody listened to something that I did. I don't remember if it was Marianne or Deborah. Because I can't remember. But they're listening to something that I did in 1998. Uh, we got to get those things off. Uh, I mean, I'm so much better now and funnier and attractive. All of those things. And so, how did they find something in 1998? You must have done that if you exist, huh? He secretly hates me, dear. But uh, anyway, I got a letter on that, and I'll cover that letter I'm, a little bit today, but actually next week, um, because they what? They were really very, very kind. They said, I don't think I agree with you. Though they were worried, I'm a highly trained religious professional, and they knew that, and so they were a little bit nervous that I might be right. <laughs> well, that's really cool. Anyway, that's, that was a lovely letter, and oh, I, I didn't have time to fit it in today. A little bit I did, because I liked it so much. Uh, in any event, uh, God says definitively, this is a statute forever for the Israelite and the stranger, and so Numbers 19 is just filled to the brim. It's overflowing with information. It's what is necessary. What is necessary to cleanse us from contact with death? Raise your hand. Never raise your hand here if you have contact with death. But we all have contact with death. So what is necessary to cleanse us from that contact with death? The answer really is who is necessary, right? Obviously it's a who, not a what. So it's an intentionally badly worded question. There is a defilement. We're defiled with death. And the proof of that we're defiled is that uh, we, are, we have death in us. I see your hands. The water. Of, and, and so the only solution is that I have these ashes of the red heifer, which has also got a mixture of water and cedar and hyssop and scarlet and all those things we talked about last week. And so I, I end up with the water that's called the water of purification. You could call it, if you wish, the water of life. And only the water of purification can overcome the defilement of contact with death. That's Numbers 19, 9 through 13. And these words spoken to Moses and Aaron, Numbers 19, 1 through 2, describing the red heifer clearly applies only to Christ. He is the only one who can be portrayed by the ashes of the red heifer. Only Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me is without blemish, is without defect. Only he does not have a yoke that has never come. Never come. Leviticus 26.13, the yoke is the burden of slavery to sin. And, and it had, it's described in Leviticus 26.13 as having deformed the Israelite. The yoke was so heavy. Now that was a physical yoke because of the slavery to the Egyptians but also was a spiritual yoke. It had deformed them. The, the language is, is, is intimating that there is a deformity, that they couldn't bear it. And so he broke their yokes, and then he had them then walk upright. So they could walk upright again. And you see the, the uh, symbolism there, I hope, the allegory, the metaphor, picture thesaurus word. So the red heifer, heifer never had a yoke of sin on it. Who is that? And so the ashes of the red heifer is to be eventually, as you read the, the, the Bible, you're going to find that when I have these ashes of the red heifer, I can't. I've got to have them stored in a clean place. It says kept in a clean place for the purpose of the water of purification. And ultimately it is accepted that this was the Ark of the Covenant that they were put inside of. So the ashes of the red heifer are in a clean place, the Ark of the Covenant. And, and the ashes of the red heifer are within that, uh, in the uh, Ark of the Covenant. They are with the rod of Aaron. The rod of Aaron was this rod. There was this event um, in number 17 where uh, Aaron's name is written on the rod of the nation of Levi. So they got 12 rods, and they were all gathered from the 12 tribes. Aaron's name was written on the tribe of Levi rod. And the sign of Aaron's rod after a day, number 17, 8, 
uh, is this that it sprouted and put forth buds and blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. So I have a rod, a staff. They lay it down, they put his name on it, and it buds, and it produces flowers and blossom. I, I'm sorry, and ripe almonds. So I have, I have buds, blossoms, and ripe almonds. Now, do those come all simultaneously? No, they do not. So there's, a, again, a chronology, a chronology there. Ah, so that's the sign of Aaron's rod. So I have the sign of Aaron's rod. And it also is stored and kept, as I said, in the Ark of the Testimony. And the testimony is referring to something that is in there. It's another sign. Testimony isn't, uh, as you might think, the testimony are the stone tablets. They are called the testimony. That's why it's the Ark of the Testimony. And they, too, are in the Ark. And they are a sign. God wrote them with his finger, which is why Christ God uses his finger in John 8, as you all are aware. Also in there is the jar of the sign of manna. That's the bread of life from heaven. Exodus 16, 14 through 16. Exodus 16, 31. That, that is, it's white like frost and it's white like coriander seed and it tastes like wafers and honey. <clears throat> it also is in the Ark of the Testimony. What do you think it looks like? Bread from heaven that is pure, that is white. And again, testifies of Christ. The manna is extraordinary testimony. He calls himself, as you know, the bread of life. And he's referring to Exodus 16. And it also is in the ark of the testimony, Exodus 16:34. Now, I should interject the argument right here that centuries old, it's over the rod of Moses and the rod of Aaron. <clears throat> the, the controversy is, if you want to think of a staff of Moses, staff of Aaron, that's perfectly fine. But essentially, the controversy, the debate boils down to the, uh, the distinction. Is it one rod or two rods? I see your hand. I hope I have more time than that. Ooh, I may not. Um, is it one rod or two rods? And the supporters of, uh, I got this, uh, the supporters of Moses say that Moses is better than Aaron, and the Aaron guys, no, Aaron is better than Moses, and, and that's all in ancient writings. And they think that it has bled into the Bible, which of course it did not. I got no time to develop, delve into this for today, but consider the possibility. I want you to consider that there are two distinct rods, and that Moses' rod is also in the ark, the sign of Moses' rod. And that would be the two rod position. So his rod and Aaron's are both in there. Okay, Moses' rod and Aaron's uh, are, were to provide signs for Israel. So they also are signs. And those are evidences that the person in the burning bush who said, I am that I am, John 8.24. Actually, Exodus 3.14, but I threw in John 8.24 because that's accurate. The person who said, I am that I am, Exodus 3.14, is in fact the creator God. And Christ said, I am that I am in John 8, 24. He said, I, I, I am the I am. And he said it 23 times in John, John's gospel alone. I am the light of Genesis 1, 3. That's what he said, John 8, 12. The light of life. I am the bread, the manna of life. Exodus 16, John 6, 35, 41, 48, 51. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11, 25. I am the truth, John 5, or 15, 1 through 5, 14, 6. So he said it constantly. I am the good shepherd, right? John 10, 11 through 14. The good shepherd is Zechariah 11, chapters 11, 12, and 13. So he, his I am is he's constantly, repeatedly saying that I am the I am that I am of uh, Exodus 3.14. That's his name. He told, because Moses said, what's your name? And Christ answered him, I am that I am. And that will take us into Revelation. And Revelation 3, where the church of Philadelphia says, or he says to them, because you have kept my name, you know that I am that I am. 3.14. Exodus. So to recap, the Ark of the Testimony has inside it many signs, and, and the signs themselves have aspects, they have information. The Ark itself is gold, it's wood, and, and it's encapsulated by gold. It's gold in authority over the wood. 
That's, that's the greatest mystery of all the mysteries, the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. Infinite God, gold, deity, adding perfect humanity and completely encapsulating it. It's the greatest of all signs. And the Ark of the Testimony is the holder. It is, the, it is a sign itself, and it is the holder of all, the keeper of all the other signs. And there will be no altar, no temple, no holy of holies, no priesthood, no sacrifice, no offerings, without the sign of the ashes of the red heifer. And therefore, the prince can't bring the end to anything until we have the ashes of the red heifer and the water of purification. He can't enter the Holy of Holies. There is no Holy of Holies unless I have that water of purification. Why does the Antichrist enter the Holy of Holies? Why does he do it? What's his motive? And when he, what's he saying by when he does it? And ask this, is the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies when he goes in there? And obviously, we, we haven't even begun to deal with the subject. Okay, moving along really quickly, sort of. I concede it's difficult to detect movement at cliffside. In the tortoise and the hare metaphor, I am the sloth. The tortoise blew by me a long time ago. He's way down the road. You know, he wins the race, so obviously... He's faster than me. And I'm, I'm mocked by the entirety of the Terrapin community, both land and aquatic. And uh, speaking of heckling, because I get, I get heckled a lot. I answered the phone yesterday, and a young person uh, wished to discuss things with me. He wanted to discuss the relationship of force, mass, acceleration, and velocity, which is velocity and acceleration uh, redundancy. He also wanted to talk about viscosity of fluid and buoyancy and gravitational force and deceleration and resistance and drag, angle of entry and vectors and all the things that apply to jumping off a mechanical device into a concrete receptacle filled with dihydrogen monoxide. As you know, dihydrogen monoxide uh, is a poisonous substance. If you, if you have too much of it in your body, uh, you're in trouble. So... That's what he wanted to talk about. And the event that uh, he wanted to talk about with all of that physics uh, was preceded by instructions that he shouted with glee. He said, hey, everybody, watch this. <laughs> Needless to say, it didn't end well for the young person. By young, he's, once you turn 35, what, how old are you really? You're 40. Yeah. Same thing. That's 40. 35, one day, one minute, one second, one nanosecond, you are 40. And, but it didn't go well for the young person. But I do believe his understanding of classical Newtonian physics has increased long, uh, rhythmically. And being old and wise, I wanted, to, um, I wanted to make fun of him. So I did. I couldn't resist it because I thought, thought myself to be in a position where I had no exposure so I did not resist the impulse to tell him that in my aged wisdom state, that I never, I never, I never beseech a crowd. I never vocalize the phrase, hey, everybody, watch me. I never say that. And he replied, to which he replied, he said this. That's because no one wants to see what you can't do. So that that is where the microphone succumbs to gravitational phenomena, and that's uh, and I slow, slothfully uh, slunk away uh, from that. But uh, it uh, made me laugh, and I thought, "Wow, okay, I will never again say something to somebody who uh, has jumped into a con concrete pit, uh, hoping that the water would resist his body." Oh, right, enough of that. Last week, I got to hurry. I inserted the question, more of a statement. That retrograde time travel is contrary to existence. I said they are, they are combatants. It, if it were possible to travel back in time, then there is no existence. That's what I said. If you can do this, if you're watching these shows and you like these shows, and I know that you do, uh, but you have to understand there's a philosophy behind them because they falsify existence. And, and I asked, why is it true that uh, they falsify or that, they, that there is no existence if you can retrograde, have retrograde time travel? To begin with, and I got a phone call on it, and, and so that's why I'm including it again today. It is impossible to travel backwise, backwards in time. 
It is an inviolable state. So there's that. You can't do it. You'll never do it. And they know it, but they still recognize that if they can make something, make you believe something that can't be possibly true, that is anti-biblical, then they can affect your understanding, right? Now, there's a there's an insidious element to it that you cannot ignore. It's in all of science fiction. But let's just grant the premise for a second. Let's say that it did occur. And if someone, a person, a being that is inside of time managed to return in time, how does that negate existence? Well, obviously, this is a Genesis 3 context or discussion. Where do we begin to try to negate existence in the Bible? And who does it? Existence is the Satan-Eve contention. Satan presents his lie that existence is an illusion. If, If there was somebody, a created being inside of time who was able to transcend time, the most likely candidate would be the one that is filled to the brim with wisdom. That would be Ezekiel 28, 12. That is Satan. He has the most wisdom. If anyone could do it, it would be him. And, and if I were to just grant just him the capacity to do it, well, then what happens? If he can do it, if I allow him, if I just intellectually say Satan can do this, then how many others would I have to give the ability to? How many would he bring with him? Ten? A hundred? Thousands? Would they all go back in the time? Go back in time at the same time? Or at different times. And what would be the result of that? Obviously, the proof that retrograde time travel is impossible, that it is inviolable, is the consistency of existence. There is no chaos. What I mean by that, if, if Satan and how many of his angels, fallen angels, does he have? He has millions. If they achieve the breaching of time, the evidence of that would be the instantaneous extinguishment of all living beings. Especially living physical beings, man and animals. Because Satan would, if he could, if, he, if he's granted the power, and he's not, he's restrained, but he could influence a human who likewise um, could travel with him, for example, or just incorporate somebody that is in the time period that he wishes. He could influence that uh, human being to kill or cause someone to kill the ancestors of literally anyone he chose. Let's just take the apostles. If he killed the ancestors of the apostles, what would happen to the apostles? Instantly, what would happen to them? Let's say that he killed the the uh, the great 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 ancestor of Paul or Peter. Killed them, had them killed, influenced their killing. What would happen to Peter? Obviously, he would be erased, wouldn't he? Uh, essentially, eventually, anyone and everyone would be erased. And that was somewhat attempted at Genesis 6. You can see them wrestling with the extermination of human beings in Genesis 6. They weren't able to accomplish it. God uh, brings a worldwide flood, Genesis 6, but he preserves animals and human beings because of the contamination. Remember in Exodus 1.5, how, how few people did I have in the nation of Israel in Exodus 1.5? I'm down to 70. Let's say that Satan were to go back in time and erase that 70. What did he erase? Kill that 70. Unless God were to resurrect them and he'd kill them again, they'd resurrect and he'd kill them again, they'd resurrect. We can do that for... And so what, what, did, what would we have to the nation of Israel if I'm killing them and they're resurrecting and I'm killing them and they're resurrecting? Do they appear and disappear and appear and disappear? You can see the, how absurd this is. And Satan in Jude 9 fought for the body of Moses. Why not instead just go eliminate Levi in Exodus 2, verse 1? And if he was able to do that, he would deprive the nation of Israel, both Moses and Aaron. And now he knows the genealogy, the entire genealogy of of Israel. He knows it. So all he'd have to do is prevent the births of Abraham, Noah, Enoch. Pick Pick any of them. Pick all of them. And And yes, I recognize that God would intervene. But you could see that there would be this constancy. If if Satan had the ability to violate time, we would be uh, in this really extraordinary position. And that we're not in that position. So that, again, is the consistency of existence. God could intervene and all things consist in Christ, Colossians 1.15, which means he has time inside of him. And he and he has intervened in this, hasn't he? Because time cannot be fractured. He's made it so it can't be fractured. By a being inside of time. 
and he won't fracture it. If, if it can be fractured, no living being would ever exist. Carried to its logical extension. You might have a temporal life, but then you would be obliterated by the killing of whatever it was that produced you. Maybe we'd be back to Adam, Eve, Satan, and the angels, and that would be it. And we'd be constantly oscillating. Why did God flood the earth and not simply erase time? Because he wouldn't do it and he didn't do it. Why is it that he wouldn't do it and he didn't do it? Because he has given existence. That's why he has given himself. His, we, he is in us. Our existence is really him. He's given it to his living beings. That's why he calls them living beings, because he is the living being. Anyway, there's a great deal more to this topic. Hopefully I got you, some of you started. Other topics have come up, uh, erupted. Hebrews 10.26, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. 10.27 adds, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Hebrews 10.26 through 2.39, and you've got to add Hebrews 6 with it, causes grief and countless sermons are preached on whether or not you're willfully sinning are you begrudgingly sinning or are you willfully sinning? If you're sinning and you really don't want to, then you're still saved. But if you're sinning and you really like to sin, well, then you're not saved. That's willful sin is liking your sin. Uh, and so we have the truly saved, countless sermons preached on the truly saved, the true believers and the true Christians. I always ask, who, who decides if who is true? Who's the gatekeeper? So sin willfully has got to be defined. It causes, again, sadness. Uh, and the immediate obvious question, who does not sin willfully? Raise your hand. Never raise your hand here. What, are you crazy? Wait, raise your hand if you do not sin willfully. Good. All sin is a consciousness element. It's a conscious consideration. Consciousness and sin. Thoughts. Matthew 5:28 and Matthew 15:19 Who's without defect? Who's without blemish? Who alone has never had a yoke of the slavery to sin on them? Who has done it? There's only one. So what is the willful sin at Hebrews 10:26 it says if you commit this willful sin then you are looking at a at the destruction of your soul essentially. I'm going to tell you really fast. It is the deliberate rejection of Jesus Christ. It is the refusal of the gift of his blood, Hebrews 10.29. It even tells you right in the context. It is the trampling of the Son. That's his blood of God underfoot. The trampling of the Son of God's blood underfoot. It is the insulting of the Spirit of grace. There's your answer. It is a fearful thing to fall then into the hands of the living God. If you have done that, deliberately rejected the blood of Christ, you trampled his blood underfoot, you insulted the spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit of grace. You rejected Christ. Then it is fearful for you to fall into the hands of the, the living God. Notice how he says that. He's living. If you do not have the blood of Christ, you, do, you are not living. He'll point that out to you. Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 is often reduced to this willful sin. And it's, it's degraded to mean all sin. Even, even this. I'm drawing attention to myself. I'm trying to be self-aggrandizing. I'm trying to be egotistical. I need affirmation. Uh, that's narcissism. I need a narcissistic supply. That's sin. I'm being... Uh, immature. That is not. That is not what is going to cost me my salvation. That is nonsense, and it's control. It, don't degrade it to that, because that is really unwise. It is actually in line with the nation of Israel. This willful sinning, because the nation of Israel, the leadership of Israel, the nation, the national element. Not all the Israelis. Obviously, the church was began by Jews. But there was this rejection of the Messiahship of Christ, Matthew 12. And willful sin is, is individual. The national sin of Israel is not individual. But they have this slight resemblance. Anyway, just be suspicious. And I'll get to it next week because I know that people are worried about it. I got, I got letters and I've gotten a phone call on it. Really a sad phone call.
Be suspicious of those who present willful sinning or sin willfully as consistent sinning. Because that's what they'll do. They say, if you're sinning all the time, raise your hand if you're not sinning all the time and you can't count sleep. Yeah. I mean, the people who say that, they say it as if they do not consistently sin. And they are sinning when they are saying that they do not consistently sin. It drives me out of my mind. Well, most people will say, well, you're already out of your mind. But this issue will lead us to the issue of Revelation 3.16. That's the definition of lukewarm. I got a call this week from a beautiful young girl. Um, By young, she's under 40. And she said to me, I am afraid that I am lukewarm. Lukewarm has to do with the deity and the person of Christ. Is he, do you know who he is? Do you want him to be who he is? Did you accept the offer of his blood, the gift of his blood, the grace of his spirit, the spirit of God? Um, Lukewarm is those who, who hate that. Lukewarm is correctly defined as profaning the godhood of Christ, polluting the godhood of Christ, diminishing his godhood. In other words, what's going on in 90% of the churches in the country today. But not in the church of Philadelphia. And I will tell you, the solution to Hebrews 6 and Hebrews uh, 10, guess what it is? That's right. It is understanding the ashes of the sign of the red heifer. You get that. These other things fall into place for you. For that, we will call it good. Or over, thankfully. Finally done. Everyone yells, yay. Make him stop.